ladies and gentlemen, it's star time at the Apollo Theater. Let's bring him on right now. Everybody, the hardest working man in show business, James Brown, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Oliver Wang. On today's installment, we're talking to Los Angeles-based author and journalist R.J. Smith, who recently wrote The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. R.J. previously wrote The Great Black Way, L.A. in the 1940s, and The Lost African-American Renaissance. Welcome to the podcast, R.J. Uh, Great to be here, Oliver. Why don't we start with asking, what is your earliest memory of listening to James Brown? Oh, yeah. I'll tell you, the earliest memory is is a kind of a specific and kind of a vague one, which is I don't have that first song that I heard that stuck in my head. Uh, I grew up in Detroit. Um, the radio I listened to, Top 40, was Motown and Bubblegum dominated. And every once in a while, this other sound came in. Um, that scream, that voice, that that's what I remember is the noise of his voice. They cut through the Motown and cut through the Archies and everything else that I was listening to mm. and just confused the heck out of me. So your initial memory of Brown is really focused on the voice. And obviously that's a huge part of, you know, what makes Brown Brown. When you started to learn more about him in terms of his life history, you know, the history of his recordings, what was it about him as an artist um, or business person or what have you that really jumped out to you that perhaps set him apart from other musicians that you had been a fan of or studied at some point? Mm. You know, on some level, he was someone who interjected himself in a lot of different situations with what was going on on the front page of the newspaper. Uh, he was a friend of presidents and politicians, uh, both Democrats and liberals and, and conservatives and Republicans. He crossed every possible spectrum that way. He he performed in Vietnam when that was a, uh, uh, well, it was a thing that people argued that he shouldn't do sometimes. Um, you know, he was a friend uh, to some degree of Dr. King's. He had this social dimension mm. that when an artist like, uh, you know, Bob Dylan has their social dimension, there's a whole carved out space for it that we can grasp it and, and file it away in. With James Brown, because he's African-American, because he's so contradictory, that space is a lot more confusing. And that really pulled me into the story, too, is trying to understand some of these social choices that he made. And this person who was, you know, to some degree, a self-made cartoon with the hair, Mm. with the ego that was Mm. uh, very real, but also very um, canny uh, and very um, constructed, I think, uh, in in terms of how it presented itself to the public. Um, you know, he was, he, he was just larger than life. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of anybody uh, to match him. Yeah. Now, Brown died in 2006, which it always surprises me to read that because I feel like for whatever reason, it was always more recent. Like, yeah. oh, it was like a year or two ago. But, you know, now it's been five, six years. Were you already working on the book prior to his passing? Mm, no, no. It was uh, a few months after that I um, got into my head to, to uh, you know, try to, to make the effort and talk right. it up and see if see if I could get a publisher interested in it because yeah there you know his is the rare case uh there wasn't a, a big great front to middle to end biography of the man on the shelf already mm-hmm. and uh I 
I thought uh, I could do something about that. Which is surprising because if you just think about how much Brown has been written about in, in some capacity, I mean, he obviously is probably one of the most written about pop artists of the 20th century, yeah. but the lack of what you're describing as kind of this definitive biography, I mean, he had his own that some, at some point that got penned, but um, you don't see the same kind of volume devoted to Brown as you would, let's say, the Beatles, for example, or probably Dylan or who have you. Definitely. Um, you know, why, why do you think that is? Why, why is there that kind of that gap out there? I think the biggest reason uh, of several is that in his lifetime, James Brown would not let anybody speak for James Brown. Mm. He spoke a lot. He gave lots of interviews, which was great for me. Um, but he wasn't going to let another writer tell his story for him, uh, tell the parts of his story he didn't want told. He wasn't going to let the people in his band answer questions about him. Uh, he wanted those questions. He wanted to be in the room when those questions were asked and to give the answers for the singers and musicians when they got them. Yeah. So he, I'm on a on a purely um, strategic or mechanical level. Uh, I don't know that I could have written this book when he was alive. Yeah. Now you spent a lot of time delving into Brown's early life uh, before his musical career took off. Mm. And for example, I n never realized that he was a, apparently an expert at stripping cars. <laughs> he 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 loved cars. Yeah, and then and that yes he. <laughs> He, yeah, he spent a lot of time in cars, and I think he spent a lot of time early on as a musician in not-so-hot cars, so he learned how to fix broken-down cars mm -hmm. uh, when he got out of prison as a teenager and then a man in his early 20s. He was living up in the mountains in northern Georgia, so you had to have a car that would uh, with good brakes that would go up and down those hills, mm -hmm. and uh, he learned a lot about cars and, and about how to uh, apprehend them. Right. Now, in this era and around the time that he was uh, coming out of or like maybe still in prison in Georgia, as you were just mentioning, he became friends with Bobby Bird, mm. who I think, as many people know, would be, you know, go on to become one of Brown's closest friends and most important collaborators. And you write, quote, if it hadn't been for Bobby Bird, there may not have been a James Brown. And I wonder yeah. if you could explain that a little bit. Oh, well, Bobby Bird is like the, he introduces James Brown to the musicians that became the Flames and the Famous Flames. He got Brown all the first gigs he had when he got out of prison, when he was living in the small town of Toccoa, Georgia. Um, he gave Brown a place to live in his own house, uh, his mom's house. Uh, Bobby Bird, his family put Brown up as a condition of his release from prison was that he have a house in a family in the neighborhood that would take care of him. Um, I'm sure Bobby Bird helped him get any number of jobs, mm -hmm. which he had to have to stay out of prison. Um, that that's the first way. I mean, it was Bobby Bird's band that mm -hmm. James Brown entered and ended up, um, overpowering, commandeering, uh, reorganizing, and that became the James Brown Band with Bobby Bird in it. Yeah. Along with Bird and a few other core players who were mentioning before that Brown um, basically formed or renamed, in, this, in essence, the Famous Flames uh, in the mid-1960s, uh, sorry, 1950s. Mm -hmm. And in 1956, they cut um, what is basically considered the first you know, James Brown hit with the Flames, which is Please, Please, Please. Please, please. Please, 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 Ralph Bass, who ran a, 
a, a label for Sid Nathan uh, at King, uh, a federal, was a talent scout, uh, a, a white guy, a white hipster who lived in black neighborhoods when he went to town to different towns to hear music, uh, lived in black hotels. Um, he he was a hipster. Uh, Sid Nathan was a businessman. He was a, a square, cigar-chomping, squat guy with chili stains on his tie. Uh, they were they were different guys, different kinds of figures. So uh, Bass heard the tape, knows he wants this band, uh, and, he, and he drives from Atlanta, where he was staying, to Macon, where James Brown was living then, uh, to find this act that he had heard just a tape of. It's a driving rainstorm, and there's a couple other labels who'd also been invited to come out to Macon. Whoever got there first was going get to the, get the star. So ba- Bass got there first, he signs, uh, he signs Brown to King, uh, to Federal and King, uh, and then, uh, you know, weeks later brings Brown into the studio in Cincinnati where, where, where uh, Sid Nathan uh, runs things. Uh, so Sid Nathan was involved, but uh, he really wasn't paying attention till these guys got in the studio and recorded the song that, that Bass was so excited about, Please, Please, Please. Well, when he... he, he almost, that almost ruined it right there for James Brown. He heard... You know, I mean, his complaint was, what is it? The, the guy only sings one word over and over and over. Sid Nathan said, fine, I'll show you how bad this is. Nathan uh, Bass just wanted to put it out in the South, just a little test. And Nathan said, no, we're going to put it out everywhere, and you're going to see what a terrible record this is. Well, he, he saw all right. <laughs> this is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Oliver Wing, speaking with R.J. Smith, author of the brand new The One, The Life and Music of James Brown, a definitive biography. That's my claim. R.J. is too humble to say that, but I will say that. Um, now, some artists have what you might describe as sort of a breakout moment where, you know, the, the way that the story gets retold later is they came out of nowhere and became these big stars, while there are other artists who sort of grind and grind in, in, in obscurity until they can finally experience a bit of a tipping point. Where does yeah. James fall along that spectrum? Wow. Well, he 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 had it both ways, and uh, he wouldn't have broken out if not for the next hit, uh, Try Me, in 1959. For the three or so years in between, he put out a lot of singles for King that went nowhere. You know, there were singles that kind of were in the um, uh, Little Richard vein. Mm. There were singles that were kind of in the in the in the Five Royales vein, uh, Louis Jordany kind of songs, but nothing that really uh, was a James Brown defining kind of record. Yeah. And uh, he toured a lot. He spent a lot of time in Florida, and there's all these mysterious stories about Brown having a family in Florida and mm. almost living there and mm. almost disappearing there. Um, and then in 59, uh, of course, uh, Try Me comes out, almost a, a last-ditch record. Try me, try me, try me, darling, tell me I need you. He'd basically been dropped from King mm. by then, uh, and and so he pressed a few copies of the record himself, and Sid Nathan heard it and said, "All right, kid, come on back in."
After that, Try Me gave him uh, a new hit to sell on the road. It gave him the money to buy his mm. to buy <laughs> to hire his first uh, real band leader, mm-hmm. J.C. Davis, mm-hmm. to hire a, a regular drummer and a regular horn section, and things really take off for him after Try Me. Which again, just to, if I got the time right here, I and mean, that's three years after, please, please, please. So I mean, yeah. there's a kind of a very long fallow period between oh, these hits. It's it's the lost years of right. James Brown. Uh, not a lot known about what he was doing then. Uh, he was playing, you know, with a drummer and maybe a you know a, a piano player or something. But a lot of pickup musicians. He was playing with guys like uh, Guitar Gable, who played this. Uh, a flat guitar he laid across his knees mm. and did kind of an old school blues thing uh, a lot of different uh, lost moments in those years yeah. yeah and he could have and he could have never been heard from again Obviously, if there's one venue that we associate with Brown, it's the Apollo in Harlem, mm. and his live albums there were, you know, among the best, his best sellers. And there's something I think very iconic about the imagination or our imagination of Brown on the Apollo stage. Yeah. How did this impression come about? In other words, you know, why was the Apollo so important to Brown and his eventual um, legend? Mm. And of course, this is the uh, 50th anniversary of the recording of that first live at the Apollo mm. album. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, James Brown always wanted to be at the top. And that first big circuit that he played on from the moment Please, Please, Please came out, um, you know, was the African-American so-called Chitlin circuit. Uh, at the top end of that, or maybe even above that uh, circuit of bars and nightclubs and tobacco barns and, and, and you know, little little bistros and stuff, were the African-American theaters the, like the Apollo. That mm-hmm. was the top of the top. Mm-hmm. And he clearly thought, if I can make it there, I've, you know, if I can make it in New York and at the top theater uh, in my circuit, then, uh, you know, that, that was the next big goal on his chain of goals. And so he set himself on that. And, uh, you know, the first time he played the Apollo, he uh, argued that he should be the headliner instead of Little, little Willie John. Mm. Um, he always he wanted to be the top of everything, right. of course. I don't know if you can answer this question, but I'm wondering, who do you think benefited more from the association, the Apollo or James Brown? Wow. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. The Apollo to this day has this legend that James Brown first appeared at the Apollo in 56, winning a uh, amateur contest. Um, Brown disputed that. Mm. Others who have uh, a possession of records of Brown's disputed. I went to the uh, Smithsonian, uh, the Apollo Theater records don't mm. indicate that. Mm-hmm. But um, in other words, a star like James Brown, the Apollo Theater knows they, they want... Um, they use him to sell their brand, and and Brown used them to sell his brand. So it's an, a really an amazing symbiosis uh, that goes on to this day. I, I don't know who got the better of it, but uh, however big Brown was uh, when he was playing, you know, uh, huge shows in Europe and in Asia, he would come back and and he'd always have to reconnect with the mm, Apollo Theater. Mm, mm. That was uh, he had to touch base, and as long as he could play the Apollo, I think he felt like everything else was okay. I love someone My love Someone Who's greater than a star 
someone Money Someone Who don't let my heart This is Lost Someone from James Brown's first live at the Apollo album, recorded in 1962, released in 1963. And you talk in the book how around this era, in the early 60s, is that uh, this is when Brown brought in drummer Clayton Filial. Am I pronouncing his name right? Uh, And drummers, you know, take a very important place in your book. So let's start with who was Filial and how did he become such an important core of the James Brown sound? He was a Southerner. Um, he had family uh, roots in New Orleans, although he was a, a man from Florida himself. Uh, and he really connected with the second line tradition of mm-hmm. New Orleans drumming. Mm. And from that, brought that into the James Brown band. Oh, um, okay. Not the first guy to bring it in, but but the most important early figure to bring it in for sure. Yeah. Um, and he taught the band... Uh, he, he was a he was a de facto a band leader himself. Uh, Philia was, and his thing was don't listen to me and just follow what I'm doing. Don't do the bass player to the guitar player. Don't expect me to carry you. Mm-hmm. You each have to play the beat yourself, and we're all going to play p- aspects of the beat, and they're going to fit together into a groove. And so we all have to internalize the beat coming in, so that it's not just me playing it and you piggybacking on. Right. Now you say in the book that. Filial brought the funk, and I think mm. one of the songs where this is going to be most clearly heard is "I've Got Money" from 1963. Yeah. And the example I'm, I'm about to share with folks here um, isolates the drums, so it's, this, it was a two-channel recording. I'm, I panned it to one side and, and, and uh, mixed it down to mono, and then after four bars, I replay the same segment, but then slow down by 30 percent, so you can really hear how intricate Filial's pattern, patterns are. So let's take a listen to this. This is the drum isolated edit of mm. "I've Got Money" by James Brown. One thing that just dominated bands and rhythm and drumming and rhythm and blues from uh, the Lewis Jordan band of the 40s and 50s on was, uh, it was there in in jazz as well, was a kind of familiar pattern called the shuffle. Mm. And, you know, in a way it's the, it's triplets on a 4-4 beat. There's another way of kind of putting it. And uh, it's a very jazzy, swinging flow. What drummers were starting to do, clearly based in New Orleans and all other places in the South, and what Philly brought into the band certainly was a move away from that shuffle sound mm. to a to a, a four four, and then a straight eight eight notes, breaking it down into sixteenth notes. In a sense, it's more metric, more regular, mm. um, less swinging, more yeah. driving, uh, and and of course there you hear Philly He's not going. He's playing you know quarter notes and eights and sixteenths. He's he's Leaning hard on that bass drum, yeah. um, it, it's it's a it's a much more dynamic sound. It's not tied to a single measure. The patterns he's playing are reaching beyond you know one measure into in, into four measures. I think um, 
So it's a whole new uh, rhythmic programming that, that leads the way to rock and roll. Right. Now, in 1965, Brown hires Clyde Stubblefield, mm. arguably the most well-known of all of Brown's drummers. And his main partner in the band was um, became uh, was the other main drummer, jo- uh, Javo Starks. Yeah. Why were these two in particular so important to the group? Wow. Well, um, part of it is that, that Jabo really held on to uh, and transformed, but always uh, embodied that that uh, that swing tradition. He he really did have that shuffle sound internalized, and and it really feels good. You know, everybody thinks, oh, the shuffle is such a simple thing, but a great shuffle player is a rare and, and wondrous thing. Clyde had that, or, or, or Jabo had that. Mm-hmm. Clyde was coming much more from the Philly tradition, uh, more more New Orleans in his sound. Uh, and so he's playing straight eights and 16th notes. He's playing what, what he called ghost notes, almost inaudible little flicks mm-hmm. of the wrist. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's two really different, it's like two different maths colliding in one sound because they often played especially live at the same time. Uh, and it really pulls and it, 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 it takes time and makes it like taffy, stretches it in different directions. Um, they had the whole history of American rhythm covered uh, with those two drummers as well. Are there examples of them playing side by side on record? Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, for instance, the second volume of the Live at the Apollo, uh, they play uh, the the great um, the great uh, piece that uh, the kind of uh, caps that whole performance. There was a time. You can hear them both playing, and you can hear them playing one a tiny bit ahead of the of the beat, and one a tiny bit behind the beat, and that's on purpose. That they're, they're really pulling and leaning in both directions at time, um, and yeah, it's it's uh, they're a whole band to themselves when those two play. The name of the dance they call a boogaloo. I may not do the dance as well as you, but baby, you can bet your bottom dollar, you'll never hear me holler, I'll do the best that I can do. This is really, I think, the kind of formative funk era and we start using that term to describe a particular kind of rhythmic sense and style of music and obviously James Brown and his players are key behind this and you talk about one of the main innovations of what made funk funk is as quote an enduring dominant present Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of you know there's these songs you were talking I think specifically about Cold Sweat but I bet this would apply to other songs from that repertoire it's not about chord progressions which suggests sort of a movement forward but really hanging in the moment can you elaborate more on what you mean by this enduring dominant present? As the measure, as the rhythm flows outside the uh, the end of the measure into the next, uh, these patterns are being played by drummers that, that are two measure, four measure, eight measure patterns. Um, grooves are growing, and grooves are built sometimes on a single chord or a couple of progressions, uh, very simple. They're not about... Um, 
uh, a, a melody, perhaps. They're mm-hmm. not about a growth, uh, not particularly about a growth uh, in terms of uh, chord progression. They're about what everybody is doing right now with time and with attitude. Uh, and everybody has to contribute. The bass player is certainly coming to the front like never before mm-hmm. uh, in funk. Um, and the drummer is playing around the beat that they're all internalizing. They all carry an essential beat, and nobody's really playing it. They're all playing around it, uh, uh, bracketing it, sort of. Uh, the guitar certainly is. Jimmy Nolan played in so many bad rhythm and blues bands before he <laughs> joined James Brown. He said, you know, I had to play like a drummer because those drummers were so bad, I had to like show them where the beat was. So he was a drummer, too. Everyone's becoming a drummer, and that's, that's part of what funk is, too. But it's about creating something that just feels really in the moment mm-hmm. uh, and could go on, which is why these songs go on for... You know, it, it can be 16 minutes, a, a side of, of a vinyl or more. Uh, it doesn't feel like it. It just feels like now. Yeah. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I'm Oliver Wang. We're talking with R.J. Smith, who just wrote the new biography of James Brown called The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. In terms of your research process and putting the book together, how hard or easy was it for you to find people who would talk to you candidly about mm-hmm. Brown and his life? It's funny, uh, as I said before, Brown was such a, um, a taskmaster and wanted to speak only for himself. And I swear, even uh, even though he had died by then, uh, people that I talked to still kind of acted like maybe he was going to come back <laughs> into the room and uh, tell them they got the story wrong. People were nervous sometimes, and that was a big hindrance at first. Mm-hmm. I think the more people talked, the more relaxed they got. Uh, you know, there's amazing stories in the book, but I just it took time and um, just a lot of conversation and explaining who I was and what I was hoping to get from the whole thing. I kind of had to, um, you know, I, I I couldn't pretend to be something I wasn't. I'm a guy from L.A. who was driving around the South uh, for a lot of these interviews and coming to a town and one person would lead me to the next. And uh, it was an organic process that the more I worked at it, the easier it got. But it wasn't ever particularly easy. <laughs> One of the things, especially as journalists, that we're always looking to to find is that sort of a f- moment where we get a story or discover a you know a trove of research that no one has seemed to have turned up before. And I'm assuming that must have happened you know many times in the course mm-hmm. of this. Is there a, a you know particular point or story that that you associate with that that this idea that you found something no one had really talked about before wow there was a at the um, south carolina state university in orangeburg there was a really incredible exhibition after brown died Uh, his estate loaned a lot of material from his house to this college to put on a really incredible exhibition of his life. There were photos and artifacts, um, just amazing things that that I spent a lot of time looking at and, and, and making notes and kind of uh, communing with. Uh, and they let me, they let me have some access to the storage areas. Uh, and I was looking at photos and material uh, and letters and uh, all these all these things that were part of the exhibition um, that uh, were very much a part of his life. So to be around that mm. material day in and day out, you know, there was a day when uh, uh, in a box there was an ace bandage. 
<laughs> it was an ace knee band knee pad uh, that that was James Brown's knee pad. You know, this is the <laughs> knee that he'd gone down to thousands of times singing "Please, Please, Please." That uh, writers have described as scarred like a road map from so many bad stages he kneeled upon and skidded across when he was dancing. Uh, here was the knee. Pad. I, you know, I had to hold myself back from wanting to put it on myself to see if it would give me like Avengers superpowers or something. Um, so anyway, that was a fun part of it. Nineteen sixty-eight is uh, takes up a lot of um, space in the book because it's such a momentous year for Brown. Uh, you mentioned very much earlier that he toured Vietnam with the USO that year, uh, and more prominently, there was his Boston concert on April fourth, the day um, MLK was assassinated. Uh, and Brown is often credited with helping to save the city from the kind of violent riots that were happening elsewhere in the U.S. This is a really broad question, but in this era of the late 1960s, what is your assessment of what Brown's politics were? Was it always based on um, kind of, you know, smart business decisions, which some people have oftentimes argued? Or do what else do we know about his motivations for how he made these decisions? I think on some basic level, two things are happening at the same time. He, he, he cares about civil rights and human rights in a way that uh, wasn't agenda-based. He, 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 he didn't have a cohesive, organic politics, the way that we might define that term, but he cared a lot about the civil rights movement, uh, and he wanted to interject himself into that movement mm. and have something to say. But at the same time that that's going on, um, he also found this huge stage that he was occupying. He was a superstar uh, who had a connection with an audience that maybe you know that few other superstars had maybe Dylan maybe Jimi Hendrix um few people really had that kind of just intense connection with an audience and he and I don't know if it's calculated but it's the way a great artist I suppose sometimes think which is there's an opportunity there you can take it to the next stage after you go to the Apollo where's the where's the biggest stage after the Apollo where is the biggest audience that you can connect with and to yes sell records but to connect with to yeah. talk about civil rights or whatever you want to talk about with he he was always hungry and bigger and broader stages kept presenting themselves to him and he never was shy about taking them and sometimes it worked and sometimes it blew up in his face yeah and speaking of things that blew up in his face or depending on how you look at it maybe it actually worked out for the best for him um, getting back to the musical side of his career, in 1970, the Brown Band goes through a major transformation mm, with yeah. Brown bringing in the Collins brothers, Catfish and Bootsy Collins. And the story behind how they get hired was one of my favorite parts of the book. <laughs> um, can you just kind of give a quick synopsis of what exactly happened that day? Mm, you know, there were a lot of, uh, of, of veterans in that band. That was one of the classic James Brown's James Brown bands uh, before the Collins guys come into it. Uh, and they were kind of fed up. Brown was a tyrant. He did fine everybody in the band all the time. Um, 
And, you know, he wouldn't let them take golf clubs on the on the tour bus because, he, as he said, black people don't play golf. <laughs> so he threw the golf clubs off the bus, apparently. <laughs> um, he just wanted to rule everybody's life on some level. And they were tired of it. They wanted to be with their families. They wanted to get more money than he was paying them. They presented him a list of demands. Uh, they formed a little de facto union or something, uh, gave him a whole list of things they wanted to stay in the band. They thought they had him cornered because uh, they were on the road and Brown knew better. He, he, you know, there had been riots in the 50s when he had not performed or not shown up for a gig. He wasn't going to do that. Plus, he'd have to pay for it. Yeah. So, um, so he, the band thought they had him over a barrel. What they didn't know was he had been kind of grooming this group of studio, young teenage studio musicians at, at King in Cincinnati to, you know, he, he hung out with them. He let them play on some B-list records. Uh, he talked about them. And so when the guys gave them their demands on the road, the old timers uh, or the veterans, I should say, they weren't old guys. Yeah. Um, uh, Brown kind of stalled got on the phone, called Cincinnati, sent his jet out there, and brought all these teenagers in who would would perform for a lot less probably than the veterans had performed for and weren't going to give them a list of demands. Uh, so when they arrived uh, in Columbus, Georgia, at a show uh, that, that the audience was getting unruly waiting for the band to come on, when he saw the Collins guys on their way there, he said, okay. And he, he fired the old band. He, he put these teenagers up who never played with him before. They yeah. knew all his records, yeah. but they didn't know the show. Yeah. And uh, he said, listen, just watch me. Everything will be fine. <laughs> it was different. It was a whole different. Uh, those first shows were rough, but uh, pretty quickly they had a whole new sound together. Not to take this too far aside, but one of the few of the veterans who survived the purge was was Jabo Starks. Yeah. How did he manage not to get fired <laughs> along with everyone else? Um, probably because Brown knew better than to fire the the guy at the very center of everything about the show, the, the top drummer he had with him, or the most dependable drummer, I guess. And I think probably there's something about Jabo's personality and his easiness, uh, his his uh, sociability and his get-along skills. I think he just finessed the situation and, and probably read it better than some of the other guys did uh, and, and uh, survived where all the other guys got canned. Yeah. Now, if the, the irony here, of course, is that the Collins era of the uh, James Brown band only lasts for a year because yeah. they basically book along over a lot of the same issues that the previous veterans had. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, during that one year, they created some of the most indelible songs out of the James Brown catalog. Let's take a listen to one right now. God. Well, the Collins era of the JBs ends, you know, a year into its its uh, its existence, uh, and then other members, other veteran members, return. Clyde Stubblefield being one of the more yeah. obvious ones, as does very importantly Fred Wesley, who then yeah. becomes J- the, the JBs musical director. Yeah. And you write that early in Brown's career is that he needed rigor and engaged in you know quote radical acts of discipline unquote. Mm-hmm. But by the late 1960s, there was, and this is from your book as well, quote a gift of liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, could you expand on that? Well, it's kind of the amazing irony or contradiction, really, of, of, of 
that era and maybe all eras of Brown in a way, but most of all that funk era with the Collins group and the first JBs and, and after into the, uh, into the 70s for sure after they left, which is um, that as discipline driven as he was, as uh, you know, one drummer uh, that, that played with them on and off for a while told me uh, only half facetiously he was a black hitler as 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 overbearing as he could be the music is so amazingly free and open and um boundaryless that uh it's just amazing to me that this disciplinarian came up with this music that makes everybody feel so uh outside of discipline <laughs> switch gears here a bit and a lot of the um, last few chapters of the book are really focused on the ups and downs of his personal life not just his relationships which yeah. are a story into himself but also his drug use and abuse you know one of the things that struck me is that you know that's not necessarily uni- certainly not a unique tale to him as an artist I mean there's a lot of stories about musical artists who get caught up and have a dark period and never recover from it the thing that strikes me about Brown and you know I got to see him at the Hollywood Bowl um, you know, probably a few months before he passed, or if not, it, within the year. I mean, it was very close. And, you know, he seemed a little bit erratic. You know, he was there with his, I don't know, with his umpteenth wife that you write about, uh, the redhead. Tommy Ray. Thank you. And, you know, it, 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 on the one level, you recognize, and having already known the, the stories, you know, there's something about watching Brown's performance in that context which feels a little bit surreal. But at the same time, like, he killed it. Like, he was really good. And as much as his career might have followed these ups and downs and, and his problems with uh, abuse and his whatever his his dark periods incorporated, he still managed to still have whatever that thing is in a way that a lot of other artists, once they lost it, never recovered. Yeah. Why? How... Yeah, how did James manage to maintain that aspect of it? Well, um, on some level, it was about uh, needing structure and discipline in his own life. I think growing up very much on the streets of Augusta, Georgia, uh, in, in, in his aunt's whorehouse uh, with mom and a dad who weren't around very much at all, and, and dad had a, a violent uh, temper of his own. Um, Brown grew up, needing discipline and and a sense of order that he alone could provide for himself and those around him to give his life a kind of meaning, I suppose. Um, That comes through in the shows. The other thing that comes through in those shows from beginning to the end certainly is, is a desperation. I mean, here was somebody that as big as he was and as loved as he was and as, you know, much a hit maker as he was, could never feel it on a certain level or mm. count on it is more like, and I'm sure he felt it, but only when he was on the stage and people were applauding and, and loving him. But when he got off the stage, he thought, I'm going to have to do it even better tomorrow night. Um, he never felt like he could take anything for granted or coast. Um, and, and those shows right at the end, you know, sometimes he was getting wheeled to the edge of the stage in a wheelchair, 
he'd get up at showtime, do it, do the splits, do the whole thing, and then he'd have to, you know, get wheeled off the stage almost. Um, he needed it, and uh, he never took it for granted. Now, I need to take advantage of the fact that I have you here and just remind <laughs> folks this is the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Oliver Wang. I'm speaking with R.J. Smith, author of the new biography of James Brown called The One. Is to sort of just pick your brain about different moments in, in Brown's musical history. Sure. Um, you know, one thing is, as good and obviously as important as he was in creating new songs, he was really killer when he was covering other people's songs as well. Yeah. And I think one of my favorite examples of this is his version of Your Cheatin' Heart, which is from the Soul on Top album from 1970, recorded mm-hmm. with Louis Belson. We'll take a quick listen to that. Your Cheatin' Heart Will make you weep You cry and cry And try to sleep but sleep won't come Look at it The whole night through Your cheating heart Will tell on you when tears come down This is James Brown's version of Your Cheating Heart from Soul on Top from 1970. And he recorded this about nine years before Brown headlined the Grand Old Opry. Yeah. Uh, and while Brown didn't, I would say, didn't have a ton of country songs in his repertoire, you suggest that he, it was important for him to be able to reach that audience. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, was this one example of that? He always felt like if he could have access to an audience, any audience, that he could win them over to his side. Uh, and I'm sure he thought what could be more of an ultimate challenge than to play at the Grand Old Opry uh, and he had to argue and debate and fight to get on that bill. Th- then when he did, you know, the whole thing was, they, they barely had had let drummers onto the stage at the opera at that point. F- drummers for like R- Roy Acuff or Ernest Tubb, let alone uh, funky drummers. Um, so when he, also they only let you do like two songs, I think. And Brown did more than two songs. He did uh, three or more. Um, and so he did a country song, sort of, um, <laughs> but he really did a mini James Brown set. And it it kind of, I mean, he was happy to have done it. He always claimed it was one of the biggest victories of his life. Mm. People that were there said um, there was a lot of tension in the room. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, because you note the, the comparison or the contrast between Brown and his um, entry, if you want to call that, into country music, compared with Ray Charles, who records yeah. an enormously successful country album. But yeah. part of what I think what you might be pointing out here is that for Brown to sort of reach that audience, he felt like it had to be on his terms, whereas Charles, I guess by extension, was more willing to kind of play up to the conventions mm-hmm. of country music with, you know, obviously with still Ray Charles doing it, but that, um, you know, th- that desire to have to sort of quote-unquote make it his own wasn't necessarily as strong with, with, yeah, with Ray. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think Ray Charles... As big and and gifted and and brilliant a musician as an artist as as we've seen, he reached out to an audience. He reached out to America. He paid attention and he studied the nuances and he downplayed the drumming on his on his amazing country records, and, and um, added strings. And he studied Nashville and tried to figure out how to fit into that format. He crossed over to his audience. 
Uh, James Brown needed an audience's love at least as much as Ray Charles did or anybody did, but he also needed people to love him on his terms. And he, his thing was his show, if you heard it, you would cross over to his side. He'd put his arms out, he'd grab you in them, and he'd pull you onto the stage uh, symbolically with him. Uh, and and that's, that's where he was coming from. This might be an, an impossible question to answer, but had Brown lived longer, and we've seen many an artist who were giants in the 60s and 70s go into sort of a quiet period and then reemerge and are rediscovered. So Saul and Burke, for example, had that before he passed away. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a lot of artists we can think of. Do you think Brown could have worked within that context? Like, could you see him working with Rick Rubin and you know having a comeback album in the way that we've seen with, with others? Or do you think that, that desire to have to do it on his terms would have prevented his ability to kind of reconnect with a younger audience through you know a different set of producers or, or whatnot? Mm, that's a great question. I think by uh, the, his later years, he f- understood the need to work more um, successfully, more uh democratically with producers, with mm. record people who are more plugged into the listenership uh, of modern times than he was. Um, so, but that was more of a symbolic thing. I don't think he ever really knew how to do that. I think he probably wanted to collaborate and be, uh, be, be at work with a gifted producer like a Rick Rubin or, or so forth. But, but I don't think he knew how to, I don't think he was good at sitting in a studio. He wasn't, he always looked at the studio as a way to make a live recording. Really. He, he, he'd do a couple takes. Uh, he'd lay a couple tracks down occasionally, but really he was about recording live in the studio. So he, the modern studio was sort of a concept that he wasn't that comfortable with. Uh, that was a problem, but yeah, he never, I, I can't help but think and wish that he'd lived longer for lots of reasons. Certainly to have had that late in life uh, re-blooming. And also just for him to have been around uh, and, and seen Barack Obama become president. I just, you know, mm, you mm, know that Barack mm. Obama would have had him perform at at the White House right. at some point right. in the last four years. Yeah. And that would, I, my mind is blown just thinking about that. <laughs> I'm conscious of time here, and obviously we can only brush the surface of the book. Folks are you know, absolutely urged to go pick it up and fall through on the many, many, many other amazing stories that are included in there. I do want to sort of go back to the beginning about when you were talking about how you first heard Brown and how it was his voice and the presence that came with it um, you know, is what struck you with that. And having spent all this time researching his life and his times and the ups and downs with it, I'm wondering, did it reshape at all kind of your initial impressions of it? Did it, it dilute it? Did it enhance it? Wow. Um, I, yeah, he is the most complicated person I've ever spent mental time with. I've spent years thinking about him and trying to understand him. Um, and he is still an elusive figure. Uh, so, um, I think there is no artist like him in lots of ways, specifically to answer your question in that way that, um, He's someone that it was abusive in his personal relationships. He abused the musicians in his band with his fists and with his wallet. Uh, he was not a comfortable guy to be around, and yet he made amazing music. And it is really difficult and really important for all of us who like to be around amazing music and great art to understand the person that made it, not accept the behavior, uh, not uh, love the behavior, 
but not turning into a caricature or a cartoon or a late night talk show gag, but as a real human being who really suffered and really made amazing music. We've been talking with R.J. Smith. The book is The One, The Life and Music of James Brown, out now. R.J., thank you so much for coming through and talking with us today. Thank you, Oliver. It's a pleasure. The Los Angeles Review of Books podcast is a production of the Los Angeles Review of Books. For more information, visit lareviewofbooks.org. For the review, I'm Oliver Wang.